0: Welcome to the Yale Law Journal podcast. My name is Kaveri Sharma, the Volume 131 Yale Law Journal podcast editor. On each episode of this podcast, I am joined by one of my journal colleagues to dive deeper into a piece published in Volume 131 of the Yale Law Journal. We speak to the author of the piece to explore their arguments off the page and bring in stakeholders and practitioners to the conversation to discuss the real-world implications of the legal scholarship published by the journal. This podcast is intended to be for anyone and everyone with an interest in the law and legal scholarship. Whether you're a tenured law professor or a high school student, we hope this podcast exposes you to the ongoing debates in legal academia and that you will enjoy listening. On this episode, I'm joined by my journal colleagues, Ryan Bamier and Broderick Johnson, to discuss a legal regime that is often overlooked and underappreciated when thinking about the law that governs prison conditions, that of free world regulatory law. To many scholars and advocates, prison law means the constitutional limits that the Eighth Amendment and Due Process Clauses impose on permissible punishment. But in fact, much of the law that shapes the conditions of incarceration are the very same regulatory schemes that also apply to those of us who inhabit the so-called free world outside of prisons. Unfortunately, regulatory law's protections often weaken or recede at the prison gate. We speak with Aaron Littman about his recent Yale Law Journal article, Free World Law Behind Bars, in which he argues that free world regulatory law, if robustly applied and strengthened, offers a pathway towards more humane prison conditions, an outcome that has tremendous potential to create beneficial downstream effects on public safety and future carceral budgets. Given that the experiences of those who are incarcerated is central to Aaron Littman's piece, Ryan Broderick and I anchor our discussion about prison condition reform in the lived experiences of a formerly incarcerated individual, Roy Giassi Bolas, who you will hear from first. Then we speak with Aaron Littman, the author of Free World Law Behind Bars, to discuss the opportunities and pitfalls of using regulatory law reforms to better prison conditions. Finally, we speak with Isha Anand of the MacArthur Justice Center, a prominent prison condition litigator who explains how together, regulatory law reform and constitutional litigation can create a multifaceted and particularly effective approach to tackling the problem of inhumane and unconstitutional prison conditions. We begin this episode discussing the lived experiences of a formerly incarcerated individual, Roy giassi Bolus.
1: Roy is the former president of PACT, which stands for the Program for a Calculated Transition. PACT is a self-advocacy and educational organization run entirely by men incarcerated at the Green Haven Correctional Facility in New York. Roy was incarcerated for 30 years until Governor Andrew Cuomo granted him clemency on December 31st, 2018. While incarcerated, Roy completed a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees. He also began his doctorate degree and published a book titled, A Non-Traditional Solution, Rehabilitating the Incarcerated. We're so excited to have Roy join us today. Um, And to get us started, Roy, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your time when you were incarcerated and where you were incarcerated.
2: Okay, uh, good evening, and I just want to say that I'm happy to be here as well. Uh, It's a privilege always to just add on to any type of struggle that everybody is trying to actually make to get things corrected, you know, especially where the criminal justice system is concerned. So I'm from Brooklyn, um, and I was born in Bedford-Stuyvesant at a young age. I had decided that I wanted to embark on trying to be a drug dealer and didn't know what I was getting into. I was 18 years old at the time, and um, because I did grow up in a broken home, my mom couldn't really keep tabs on me, and the peers had more influence over my decisions. And ultimately, I tried my hand at being a drug dealer and hanging out with a crowd that I knew I shouldn't have been hanging out with. And when it was all said and done, um, I entered into a type of arena that was way above my head. It was definitely more than I can actually stand or bargain for. Uh, And two drug crews, which was common in in that particular area, a lot of drug crews and guys who opposed one another got into a lot of violent altercations. I found myself um, where I was being arrested for a slew of different charges, um, and it was all violent crimes. And I ended up being sentenced to 80 years of life, um, of which I ended up serving 31 years. Um, and I started my um, prison sentence like as soon as I like basically was getting ready to enter into my 18th or 19th year. And um, it was my first felony. Um, I wasn't a career criminal; just the overzealous, uh, unknowledgeable, if you will, teenager trying his hand at something that was a little bit too much for him. And I was charged with murder, though I didn't kill anyone, something that actually had really, really taken me aback and really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, Because over the years, everybody would say, why would the criminal justice system sentence you to such a harsh sentence when you didn't take anyone's life? And most of us inside of those poor neighborhoods, we do not know the law and we're not taught the law, and no one knows that you can actually be involved in a particular crime. And if somebody dies, even if you don't pull the trigger, but if you're there as an accessory to another crime, they'll confine you guilty as well of a murder if it takes place during the course of the crime. So when the judge was reading off the charges, and he started going down to around murder and this and that. And the only thing I could do was just my, my jaw dropped. And I just looked at him like, what are you talking about? You know, and, but I didn't know, you know, just naive. And again, like I said, over my head um, in a game that I really didn't understand, um, but it was too late, you know, and they had, me, and that started my trek. I started my state prison sentence in one of the worst prisons in New York state. Um, Clinton down which is by the Canadian border. And that's where I g- had to grow up fast or, lo- or lose my life, you know, and that's how I started my prison sentence.
1: I want to talk um, to you a little bit more about the specific physical conditions of the prison. Do you have any stories about the times you remember the physical conditions, for instance, the food you were served or the medical care being offered being particularly
0: bad?
2: Yeah, um... I have one one um, thing that I remember the most I, I, I arrived at Clanton Denmor and we went to get our food you know it's, it's similar to like students going to the cafeteria getting their tray and getting food and we got we had gotten our food and we were um, arranged to sit down and we started eating and a guy across from me had separated his spinach. And there was a huge water bug laying out flat out with the, and I, I I, couldn't believe I was sitting I said, just a few guys back, that could have been me scooping up, eating a water bug. So I'm sitting here looking at his spinach and he's like, look at this, y'all, look at that. And when he separated, you could see the water bug with the legs spread it out, crushed, just laying under the spinach, you know? And, and that right there was something that, took a toll on me because I always became paranoid about what I'm eating from the cafeteria inside of any prison. and. Sometimes the conditions can be horrible. You know, like I hear guys who work inside of the kitchen and they're like, be careful with the cakes because sometimes we can't hide them and, and secure them enough. And the mice and the rats, they are dancing across the cakes. And then we pull them out in the morning thinking everything is all right. But then if we're not uh, on top of our job, there's feces uh, on top of the cake or on the, you know, and these conditions, they become uh, horrendous. Um, and that's only one aspect. Sometimes you have um, in Green Haven they used to have rats running up and down the tier and outside on the weight, because they have these these things called courts in the in the yard. And these courts are like little sections of the yard with different groups of men who are friends, they come together to exercise and uh, I remember one time uh, some guy had actually tilted over. They'll give you a big, huge wooden box where you can put a lot of dumbbells in. But underneath, there were rats, huge rats, de- burying, um, digging and, and, and trying to bury like their babies and everything and food in those areas. And so one day, they decided to clean the court, the weight court, and lift up the, the box, the wooden box. And when they lifted up, the rats shot out they just started running. If you can watch grown men, hardened criminals, jump up on benches and everything. If you can envision that that's how bad it was because the rats were running everywhere and they just were trying to find a place to go. And it had gotten so bad that they had to remove the boxes, put steel cages so the rats couldn't go under something and not be seen because they were actually digging, digging little tunnels all through the yard, you know, and having babies down there. And, you know, so those are some of the conditions um, where medical is concerned, um, usually for the most part, I could say medical is not really that bad, but there are times when things happen. Um, we just lost a PAC member last year to COVID. Um, and, you know, and before they actually pulled him in and, 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 you know, tried to address it, he already, cause he already was suffering from a lung disease and, other problems. And he was older and he was ailing and, you know, he passed away. Unfortunately, his name was Benjamin Smalls. And, um, but outside of that, there are different things that happen inside of the hospitals that sometimes, you know, the people on the outside world, they don't have an inkling, um, is taking that these things are actually taking place. And, uh, for example, I had a, a doctor that I went to see about a stomach problem and, he was actually addressing a lawsuit while he was talking to me and he was a, he used to be a, a veterinarian. I don't know how a veterinarian could get inside of the prison system and pose as a medical doctor, but now I understand why he has so many lawsuits because he obviously wasn't equipped and he <laughs> didn't qualify, you know, but he was there. And they said that he had so many lawsuits, you know, and he, he actually at that moment when I was going through what I was going through, he had actually told me that I can, take uh some medication. Um I don't know if you know but non steroidal anti inflammatory um, medications you get to to remove pain when you get hurt. So I had a pain from working out. But in my stomach, they say if you if you have a weak stomach, you don't supposed to take those medications. It's like you're know, supposed to take aspirin and so on and so forth. And he told me, Go ahead, you can take it. You can take it and it messed me up. I ended up with an ulcer, I ended up sick and you know, so these are the things that sometimes do not get addressed, you know, and they're like little loopholes. They're so quiet and so silent. But for the most part, you can bet that there are litigators in the law library that actually try to take the onus or take the responsibility of addressing some of those things, you know. And uh, there was another time in in uh, Greenhaven, in fact, uh, before I left, they had hired uh, a doctor from I don't know if she was from Russia or Serbia or whatever, but she was so nasty. And she would just like bypass everything. Nothing was important. Nothing was urgent to her. She just want to get you in and get you out. She'll address you verbally and just get you out. She didn't want to give you no medication. And and when you try to speak to her like with some sense, because she's so used to speaking to people who don't have sense, she you know she feels like you're trying to challenge her. And it's like, and I'm like, this is crazy. And you go through that over the years, it takes a toll on. You. I mean, it just drains you over and over again, and they like to give ibuprofen to a lot of the guys, um, and I'm pretty sure the women, too, in the different prisons in New York, they'll give you ibuprofen for everything, you know, oh, that hurt, take ibuprofen, oh, your leg is falling off, take an ibuprofen, you know, (laughs) know, your arm is twisted and your neck is broken, take an ibuprofen, (laughs) you know, so everything is ibuprofen, that's one of the things that I didn't like, but I do like the fact that there are litigators that try to fight. And they try to address some of the conditions, you know, uh, whether it's the living quarters or it's the food or the filth or, you know. But one of the bad things is that sometimes when these problems are trying um, to be addressed, sometimes you can be threatened by people in power, you know, and they can actually tell you, look, you put in a grievance because the grievance is the first step towards a lawsuit. So if the doctor did something to you, and you felt like it was intentional or was neglect, you have grounds for a possible lawsuit. But the first step is what they call the grievance process. You have to formally put an agreement, make a complaint, have um, the grievance committee call the doctor and see why did this happen, how did this happen, so on and so forth. And they have to find a way to resolve it. Most of the time, they can't resolve a human violation. you know. And once that violation takes place, the person can say, okay, that's it. I'm getting ready to start litigation and then they'll move. But sometimes you can try to address things and you will have someone pull up on you and tell you, withdraw that grievance, you know, because they can see clear as day that there's no way that this is going to get in front of a judge and get kicked out and somebody's going to be in trouble in this system. So sometimes they'll come to you and tell you, no, don't pursue that. I'm telling you. And you'll see guys go down. Some guys go down I'm not withdrawing nothing. And next thing you know, they have a, homemade knife the set, you know, or they'll have some, a bag of dope thrown under their bed, you know, or officer will allege that they got assaulted, you know, so they can take him and throw him in a hole and he can't continue his litigation in the hole, you know, because he's limited, you know, to what he can do and the assistance he can get. And it's just a lot, you know, but there are people who try to address the conditions, you know, in a legal sense. And without that, I'm pretty sure the gap would widen. And it would be chaos, just like pre-Attica, because it was the Attica riot that kind of like um, spun the grievance program into existence and spun college into existence and contact visits with families, and phone calls, and so on and so forth. You know, so to that extent, those are some of the conditions that actually exist inside a prison.
1: Did you ever know anyone pursuing these litigation strategies to be successful in pushing for better conditions? Or were they usually unsuccessful like you were saying before?
2: Yeah, many are su- unsuccessful. Um they you know, they are deadlines, there are a lot of things that you have to kind of like fall in alignment with and between the mail mailing system being delayed when you try to mail something and maybe it won't leave the facility when it should or when mail comes in and it might be delayed in calling you for your legal mail and that one or two days that they might take extra to give it to you that might be part of the deadline you know that the court made you have 48 hours to contact us or so on and you know so a lot of people lose but i have a friend who actually had his mouth messed up by the dentist. Um, and I think it was in Sullivan Correctional facility and his mouth, something happened with his teeth, but the dental department did something really, really bad. And he decided to pursue litigation and he actually won, you know, and there are many guys and girls, I'm pretty sure who were incarcerated that went and he won. And that was a friend that I know firsthand who actually won. And he was compensated, um, for the damage done to his, um, teeth and, and his mouth. So it, it definitely happens.
1: Um, you've talked to us a little bit about Green Haven and your answers. Can you tell us when you first went to Green Haven and then a little bit about your participation in PACT and what PACT is?
2: Over time, you know, I started to open up and run groups. Uh, I was known by the governor said that uh, one of the good things is that I had actually engaged PACT and Yale together in a prison program setting and actually I started a college program on my own in another facility and brought it over to Greenhaven and I did it from scratch. First college program um, instituted by someone who was incarcerated without the help of administrators, you know, and sometimes the bureaucracy is so crazy because I remember trying to institute college. They snatched college out. So guys, uh, anyone incarcerated couldn't have college. They said, no, we're not going to pay you. You're going to break the law and then we're going to give you free college so that they passed the law. It said, no more tap, no more Pell for those who are incarcerated. I was so furious that they snatched college that I decided to go to the library and read everything that I can read about college. That's how I found a way to be able to build a college program. So when I instituted it, I structured it. I taught it, managed it. I became the dean. I became the professor. I became the academic counselor. I became the student. Um, It was everything in one. And then I started pulling all of the guys out of the yard and said, stop hanging around doing nothing. There's no room for idle time. Let's do something better. Something You have to use your time. Don't let the time use you. And they started coming down. And I would actually teach different subjects, psychology, um, drugs, and alcohol, uh, counseling and financial literacy and so on and so forth. And then I would train them, telling them that if I teach you, I'm going to train you, you're going to have to do for others what I'm doing for you. And I ended up with an entire cadre of men and we started to do the college program. So I went to the superintendent and I said, I would like to incorporate this into the facility, you know, stopping people from being violent, you and so on and so forth. He was like, no, 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 we're not going to go through that. I'm, we're not going to do that. And then I found a way to institute the program under because at the time I was running an HIV prevention program. And in order to be able to be in that program, in an apprenticeship um, program, you had to have some form of college. So I took the knowledge that I have of college and I had put the guys through the different courses that were needed. So the facility wanted the Department of Labor Apprenticeship Program so guys can aspire to be HIV counselors even after they leave and get employment in the field. But they didn't want to supply the college courses. So I quietly started teaching the college courses. And then I hooked up with the education department and they would proctor the exams and then guys would get credits, you know, towards a a transcript and towards a degree if they wanted to pursue and go further. And then one day the superintendent comes through with all the higher ups from um, in Albany commissioners and everybody, and he comes and he says, oh, this is Roy Bowles here. This is the guy that he runs the HIV prevention program, one of the best programs in New York state. And he also instituted a college program, which, you know, shows that the facility is really at a good height right now in the way of trying to change lives. And And I was like, this is crazy. Like, how are you going? You're the one who's preventing me from actually incorporating the college program. But then it was almost like they were forced to accept the program. You know, and what I come to find, even out here, sometimes it's more about politics than it is about anything else. And if you know how to say the right words and you talk the right way and you act the right way, you can get the world. So though he didn't accept the program proposal I put in for the college program, eventually he did accept it and he let it run. And he started telling the education department, you assist Roy, whatever he needs to get this program running to make sure that it runs smoothly. And I ran that. So when I entered uh, Green Haven for a second time and got into the PAC program, I was telling them that we're not just gonna sit here and just wait for Yale to get here. I said, this is a new day here. This is what we're going to do. And I started telling them different things. And they were like, where do you get these ideas from? And I'm like, this is things that I've done over the years. And we're going to do it right here and pack also, because I know Yale will love this right here. And I started incorporating the classes. And as, when I left, they were still doing the classes also. you know. But I say that to say that um, being inside of the different facilities, I started to learn a lot. You know, how to act and how to politic, how to help others, how to actually counsel other people who are incarcerated that didn't want to listen to anyone else. So in a way, it seemed like a curse, but there was also a blessing because it allowed me to be able to deal with a large array of incarcerated people, to deal with officers who seemed to be the worst of the worst, you know, to deal with the bureaucrats and the higher-ups on the hierarchy of the prison, you know, and it worked. It taught me. It taught me an etiquette, and it taught me discipline. You know, and as I went and traveled through all of these different prisons, you know, and unfortunately, sometimes guys go to those prisons that are bad, and they don't make it out. You know, they end up dead, or they end up hurt, or they lose their minds. You know, some friends that I have that actually lost it, it was just too much. You know, but that's my journey in the way of the things that have taken place in different you know, facilities as I travel throughout New York State prison system.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. It's always so great to talk with
0: you.
2: Yes, thank you very much. It was good to talk to you all as well.
0: Roy's experiences paint an unfortunately all too common picture of conditions within prisons. Aaron Littman of UCLA, who we will speak with next, argues that the regulatory laws governing public health, public utilities, public finance, and public records should also be understood as part of the corpus of prison law, because they can and do shape incarceration in profound ways. Aaron Littman is a Binder Clinical Teaching Fellow at UCLA School of Law, where he is also the Deputy Director of the UCLA Law COVID Behind Bars Data Project. Aaron is a former clerk for Judge Stephen Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and for Judge Myron Thompson in the Middle District of Alabama. Aaron's clinical teaching focuses on litigation and policy advocacy to challenge the actions of police, prison, and jail officials. Most recently, he developed and led a year-long appellate prisoners' rights clinic, in which students briefed and argued cases of formerly pro se incarcerated plaintiffs before a federal court of appeals. Aaron is the author of a recently published article in the Yale Law Journal entitled Free World Law Behind Bars. His piece argues that U.S. regulatory law's protections often recede at the prison gate. However, if robustly applied, reformers and lawmakers can employ already existing regulatory infrastructure to generate meaningful prison condition reforms. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron.
3: Great to be with you. As previously mentioned, your new article argues that regulatory law provides a pathway to prison condition reform. At the most basic level, can you sketch out the differences between regulatory law and constitutional law in the context of prison reform?
4: The kinds of claims that I was used to bringing when I was a prison conditions litigator in the Deep South um, were mostly Eighth Amendment claims. There are some other constitutional provisions as well. And Eighth Amendment claims are fundamentally concerned with what is permissible punishment, what is cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and courts, for a bunch of substantive and procedural reasons, have said that all sorts of outrageous treatment is not cruel and unusual punishment. So maggots in lunch food is not cruel and unusual punishment. Um, And being subjected to unacceptably poor medical care uh, is not cruel and unusual punishment, unless it reflects the deliberate indifference of doctors or prison officials. Um, And so there's all sorts of egregious problems from people being charged phone rates of dollars a minute to talk to their loved ones, to Having medical care from uh, people who have lost their licenses for sexually abusing their patients that are just uh, not really actionable under the the constitutional framework. and so my paper um, tries to to look for another avenue in and turns to the the same kinds of regulatory law that we rely on to to protect our our health and safety um, outside of prisons and jails. And some of the advantages to that are that uh, regulatory law, is transcontextual, right? So it um, it applies to schools and uh, other public institutions and corporations that that we interact with in a in a free market, um, as well as it applies to uh, to prisons and jails. There are also uh, procedural advantages. So regulators um, have a variety of remedial tools that are not available. Um To courts at least under current doctrine, and what is the difference
3: between how regulatory law is currently applied to prisons versus how it is applied to the rest of society?
4: as I say in the article, the regulatory state um stops often or weakens at the prison gate, so um it's not that it it doesn't have any application, but it it doesn't apply with full protective force and so I'll give you a few examples um one is medical licensure. So, um, states are responsible for licensing doctors, um, the doctors we see, the doctors prisoner of see. Um, and you can't practice medicine unless you have a license. And in Louisiana and many other states, the medical licensure board has basically decided that people who have lost their licenses for, for various serious misconduct, whether it's um, sexually assaulting a patient or just committing malpractice over and over again, they get these limited practice institutional licenses that then entitle them to work in prisons and jails and nowhere else so the doctors that you end up getting if you're a prisoner you don't have a choice who you go to see you you get the person who is provided to you um have these limited practice licenses and and there are real concerns about the quality of the care that they um they provide another example another good example is um food so you know when you go to a restaurant uh, or Eat in a school cafeteria, there's regulation of the food that's being provided to you, the safety of it, um, the way it's cooked, the, the temperature to which it's cooked, the way dishes are washed, all sorts of things that keep you safe and mean that you don't get salmonella and you don't get uh, other kinds of food poisoning. You don't, um, you know, you don't get sick from your food. And those food safety laws formally apply in prisons and jails. But they're often not applied with full force. So um, an example I mentioned is is from Arizona. This journalist got kitchen inspection reports and there were rat infestations and blood smeared all over walk-in coolers and uh, hand-washing sinks that didn't have any soap so people couldn't clean their hands. And the food service inspectors found these problems and then just said pass and let the prisons off the hook and and didn't force them to to fix the problems the way that would have happened in um, some other institutional setting.
1: Since it seems like such horrible policy, why do you think there has been this hesitation to using regulatory reform in the prison context thus far?
4: There have been some uh, efforts and some successful efforts to do it, but I think there are a few reasons. So, so one is that there has been a view that um, a view among judges that that prison and jail officials are entitled to tremendous discretion. Um, to to operate uh, their facilities in the ways that they see fit. And I think that has, in a really unexamined way, sort of been been, um, adopted by the regulatory state, Um, although there's no need for that to be the case. Another reason is that there's been increased corporatization of a lot of the services that we're talking about. So um, while most prisons are not private, they're public institutions, a lot of the medical services and food services and telecom services and financial services are privatized now. Um, And that often creates fiscal incentives, uh, not just for the private corporations, obviously, but for the public institutions that get kickbacks from them um, that uh, are able to save money out of their budgets by spending less on these services. And so I think there has been comfort in a deregulatory attitude uh, for that reason. You know, another factor is certainly that um, our regulatory state in the free world protects poor communities of color less well than it does uh, wealthy white people. And the people who are incarcerated are very disproportionately poor people of color, almost all poor and very disproportionately people of color. And so, um, in some sense, that's not a surprise, Um, but, uh, you know, I think there are also real opportunities here to highlight the ways that conditions in in prisons and jails impact the rest of us, uh, certainly impact those same communities that I was just talking about, but also everyone in society, right? Everyone who's concerned about not getting COVID that was incubated in a jail. Everyone who's concerned about crime commission rates, because there's there's good evidence that many of these policies are actually criminogenic, bizarre as that sounds, for a system that's supposed to prevent crime.
3: One of the perceived benefits of litigation is that courts are a bit more insulated from political influence in the other branches of government. And that the decisions can perhaps stand the test of time a bit better. While on the other hand, the positions and priorities of Congress and the executive branch, uh, who are mostly responsible for regulations, can flip after an election. What are your thoughts on this, especially considering that prisoners don't have much political power that would make politicians listen to them?
4: The theoretical benefit of the courts there as independent arbiters of justice is in most cases not doing incarcerated people that much good at the moment. And there are a few reasons for that. One of them um, is the, the Prison Litigation Reform Act. One is frankly, I think, a, a view among many judges that it is not really their institutional role to do what they would call micromanaging prisons and jails. You know, The way these reform cases often go is that there are years of expensive litigation, and there is eventually um, an order entered whether uh, occasionally by the by the judge without the consent of the defendants and often by consent of the defendants. And then there's a monitoring process and mostly things don't get better or they don't get significantly better or they fall back again. And there is contempt power. The federal courts have contempt power and sometimes they use it um, and sometimes they fine prison systems even substantial sums of money. but. They are not really especially well suited to uh, managing an ongoing process of dramatic change. Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to use them. Um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't go after the obstacles that uh, impede their doing that. Um, and doesn't mean that in some cases they haven't uh, of late been been um, really important forces for change, but. They don't hold quite the promise that I think we think they might, um, especially in this kind of uh, world of mandatory injunctions where um, instead of you know, prohibiting some very discrete practice that it's e- easy to check off on and say, all right, well, are you doing that anymore or not? Um, they're, they're trying to sort of shepherd a system through a variety of complicated, costly changes. That's all to say, uh, some of those some of those problems could could be addressed probably if the PLRA was repealed, if the federal bench were different. Um, some of them probably couldn't be, but the alternative is, as you say, a much more political process, and the cost to that is that political winds can shift. The benefit is that even with a bad federal judiciary and and Our current Supreme Court seems extremely hostile to prisoners' rights claims and probably will be for the foreseeable future. There are lots of avenues. So, you know, in states and counties and cities across the country, people can put pressure on officials. Uh, And when there's a good federal government, good federal executive uh, at the federal agency level as well, there can be reforms implemented that show the way forward. And one of the important points to make here is that the laboratories of federalism have a particular role to play because there's so much stasis and hesitancy to make progressive change in the criminal legal system because of this fear of uh, political consequences and having a jurisdiction. Make some step, significant step forward, and show it can be done, and ideally produce data to show what its impacts are um, can be hugely valuable, and then can be can be replicated in other places. The other point to make, just just briefly, is you know courts certainly have a role to play in regulatory processes too, and um, forcing regulators to act when they have an obligation to act and reviewing agency action. So uh, it's not that they they would be absent from this arena entirely um but the kinds of claims they would hear would not be um limited to this uh you know and are not limited to this this arena of um cruel and unusual punishment right this 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 arena of uh what's a permissible treatment of an incarcerated person
1: i imagine that a lot of the reforms and improvements you're advocating for are going to require a lot of resources. How do you see that outlay of resources potentially creating stakeholders that might interfere with later efforts at reducing the incarceration rate or even at abolition?
4: So I think that tension is is a critical one, and it depends on uh, what resources are invested in and through what avenues. So. Increasing the budget of a county health department to do more oversight in the county jail actually creates pressure in a in a positive direction, right? If you if you hope that that county health department will eventually staff up a variety of programs that address harms like substance use and mental illness that that could actually reduce the jail population, um, it's it's a shift of resources and power in the right direction towards uh, towards a, a part of the welfare state rather than the penal state but there are other arenas and and the 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 building example is is the clearest one where investment would be would be really problematic and entrenching potentially and you know so i think that suggests ways to prioritize efforts and also suggests the importance of identifying arguments for responses to problems with physical structures that don't involve making new ones. Um, So, so the obvious one there, right, is that it's often the case that if you have the population inside, you are actually just fine, right? So, so there are not, uh, there are not enough bathrooms for X number of people, but if you have X divided by two, then you're fine. There is not enough educational space, uh, or food preparation space or whatever. Um, or you need to close a particular wing because it's infested with black mold, those things are all possible if you reduce the population without building a new facility. And so that's, you know, that's certainly a, a sort of center point of a lot of abolitionists organizing around um, prison and jail conditions Is saying the response should not be building, building new things. You know, it's not a clean answer in some situations, right? So fire safety is a big one where it's often impossible to make a, a housing unit safe in the to to the risks of a a a fire without investing some money in renovating it if you need to change the exits you need to um, build new sprinkler systems something like that and there you know i think my view is that uh there are going to be a significant number of people incarcerated in our communities for a significant period of time unfortunately even in the best possible scenario and so we have an obligation to keep them as safe as possible, and and those are things we have to do. But certainly to the extent that you can focus on programs that provide more services through agencies that are not carceral, that are public health agencies, that are um, other kinds of welfare-promoting agencies, and that promote transition of people to to receiving services outside of a prisoner of jail. That's, that's the place to be. I'd love to
3: hear you talk about how you see litigation coexisting with regulatory reform. So for instance, say in, in, in an ideal hypothetical world of yours, um, a lot of prison conditions are handled by the regulatory state. Um, are there any things that would still need to be addressed by litigation
4: at that point? my view on this is that we are so radically far from an ideal world that we should carefully and strategically throw the kitchen sink at it i think i think we need to try everything and see what sticks we need to we need to keep litigating eighth amendment cases we need to bring more ada cases you know to to raise disability rights claims we need to File more petitions for rulemaking. We need to figure out. Somebody recently filed a mandamus action in California to um, force a sheriff to exercise authority under a provision of state law that provides for release of incarcerated people during a public health emergency. We need to be filing whistleblower actions, um, raising claims that that federal healthcare detention contractors are are not providing the services they've, they've purported to provide um, and are getting paid for providing. So we need to do all of this um, and and more. I think there are certainly things, kinds of abuses that constitutional litigation is, is in fact perfectly designed to address, right? So the deliberate indifference framework is really apt for cases where there is intentional vindictive brutalizing of people Um, and that happens all the time in prisons and jails the case where a person is left suffering on the floor of his cell in pain because the prison doctor doesn't doesn't like something he said that's really a, a claim perfectly suited to the eighth amendment but the broader questions of Structural reform and and also advocacy to address the fiscal forces that shape the way prisons and jails are operated. There's good to be done through litigation, but, but we need more than that.
0: As we've heard, focusing on the regulatory law that governs prisons doesn't mean that litigators, reformers and advocates should abandon their constitutional claims. To speak to how regulatory reform can coexist and even support constitutional litigation, we speak with Isha Anand.
3: We are so excited to welcome Isha Anand to the podcast. Isha is Supreme Court and Appellate Counsel at the Roderick and Solange MacArthur Justice Center. Her practice focuses on correcting the strategic imbalance facing criminalized defendants and other marginalized groups. She does this through impact litigation, directed at prison conditions, excessive force by police, and other civil rights claims. She is also a former law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Ninth Circuit Judge Paul Watford. Now, full disclosure, I had the privilege and pleasure of working with Isha last summer. She is a wonderful lawyer and person, and we are lucky to have her join us today. Welcome, Isha.
5: Thank you so much, Broderick. It was totally my privilege to work with you, and it's an honor to be invited on this podcast, and I am looking forward to talking about prison reform and discussing Aaron's article.
3: All right, let's just dive right in. Isha, can you tell us what typical litigation for prisoners look like?
5: Sure. So litigation by or on behalf of a prisoner looks very different from almost any other kind of litigation, and that's both because of prisoner-specific procedural hurdles, sort of most notably the strictures of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, and sort of prisoner-specific substantive hurdles, but also because of these kind of trans-substantive procedural and substantive hurdles that operate to disparately impact prisoners, particularly those proceeding per se. So let's walk through sort of a handful of examples. So before a prisoner even files a lawsuit in federal court, he or she must, per the terms of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, exhaust, quote, available administrative remedies. So what does that mean? It means that a prisoner has to avail themselves of the prison's own grievance process. So right at the outset, right, that means that a prisoner is filing a complaint, faulting the person who has total control over every aspect of their life, right? Faulting a guard or faulting a warden who has control over what they eat, where they sleep, whether they're protected from violence, whether they have access to basic hygiene, Um, and is doing that in the vast majority of cases in a system that doesn't provide any sort of privacy or anonymity. These systems are often incredibly Byzantine. I, as a trained lawyer with many years of experience, often have trouble figuring out whether someone has properly exhausted because the set of regulations about how you have to proceed through the grievance process um, courts have described these systems as Kafka-esque, as Orwellian doublethink. I mean, they're really, really confusing. Um, once a prisoner files a grievance, they sort of take the risk of being retaliated against in some way. Sometimes that means violence. Sometimes that means transfer to a less desirable prison or a less desirable part of the prison. And even if they aren't directly retaliated against for filing this complaint, it almost certainly means that they're going to be branded as sort of a troublemaker. So a client of mine is incarcerated in California. Um, there's a system called SOMS, S-O-M-S, that is sort of um, the record of all the complaints that a person has filed. And he says when he gets to a new person, the first thing that guards do is look up his profile and say, oh, you're a troublemaker, right? You have filed grievances. So okay, that's before we even get into federal court. So let's say a prisoner successfully navigates this incredibly Byzantine process, does so despite the risks that they take. Um, So what happens next? So, well, they've got to file a lawsuit, which means one, putting a complaint together, and two, paying a filing fee. So let's take each of those in turn. So start with the complaint. Most district courts require prisoners, unlike other folks, to fill out a sort of specific prisoner complaint form, Um, and these are often sort of designed to trip up prisoners in some ways, right? So, to take just one example, the exhaustion process I talked about, um, the Supreme Court has said, a failure to exhaust is an affirmative defense, that is, defendants have to raise that you didn't exhaust, you don't have to plead it in your complaint. Uh, And yet in the vast majority of district courts, they've got a section on the form that says describe efforts to exhaust, right? Um, What prisoner is going to know that actually that can only hurt me. I don't have to fill out that section. It's an affirmative defense, right? Um, So that's just sort of one example of the ways in which these prisoner complaint forms operate as this kind of almost separate body of law that seems to be totally divorced from any kind of Supreme Court precedent. So you get this prisoner complaint form, you fill it out. Um, What do you put in your complaint? Well, a lot of the information that you need to make your case is often kind of uniquely within the control of defendants. Um, So to give, you know, sort of one example, you know, there are a variety of statutory and other regimes under which prisoners can bring claims, and we'll discuss some of them. But the sort of standard bread and butter claim is an eighth amendment claim, a claim about cruel and unusual punishment. And that requires uh, proving a mens rea of deliberate indifference. That is, the prison official you're suing subjectively knew they were putting you at risk of serious harm. Um, How on earth is a prisoner going to identify facts showing that a prison official subjectively knew about the risks of what they were doing? Um, And even where prisoners do identify those facts, one of the things we've seen is that the kind of Plausibility threshold, right, so a complaint is screened for whether the factual allegations are plausible, um, operates really differently for prisoners. Judges often find implausible the sorts of occurrences that anyone who works in with a prisoners knows uh, are, actually, are actually more than plausible, they're, they're routine. Um, even if you get all of, even if you sort of get past those hurdles, you fill out the complaint form correctly, you plead the kind of information you need to plead, you still have yet another hurdle that most litigants don't face, which is before your complaint is even docketed, a district court can sua sponte just dismiss the complaint out of hand on a variety of grounds. It can be failure to state a claim, it can be because they think a defendant gets qualified immunity, on a whole set of grounds, um, and that's sort of really antithetical to the way we think that the litigation system usually works. Right? We think of it as an adversarial process, like you file your complaint and then we see what defendants come up with to kick out your complaint. But for prisoners, um, that's not how it works. The judge kind of does this initial screening. So all right, let's say you've exhausted, let's say you've got your complaint at, and you have to pay a filing fee. And unlike in the free world, Informa pauperis status, that is a judicial determination that you can't afford the full filing fee, doesn't get you out of paying the filing fee. It just means that you are allowed to pay the filing fee in installments. Um, And uh, courts will garnish any income you have in prison down to about $10. That's all you are allowed to keep in your commissary account, the account that will pay for often basic hygiene products like soap or menstrual pads. Um, And even that, the ability to pay in installments, and remember these filing fees are hundreds of dollars um, and prisoners are earning pennies per day sometimes in prison jobs. Even that ability to pay in installments rather than upfront can be curtailed if you have uh, incurred what are called strikes. So there's a provision of the Prison Litigation Reform Act called the Three Strikes Provision. And that says if three times you've had a case dismissed as frivolous, malicious, or for failure to state a claim, you can no longer pay in installments. If you ever wanna come to court, you better have hundreds of dollars upfront to pay at the time you file your complaint. Well, any practicing lawyer knows dismissing a complaint for failure to state a claim, I mean, Thurgood Marshall has had a complaint dismissed for failure to state a claim, right? That's not a sign that the litigation uh, is frivolous in some way um, it sometimes a sign that it's novel it's sometimes just a sign that the district court um, needed more than you were providing in that particular case and so the idea that someone would be penalized if three times they had a complaint dismissed for failure to state a claim three times you know three constitutional violations over the course of um, a decade long sentence in prison is sort of nothing um, but at that point you assume Essentially are barred from the courthouse doors with a couple of limited exceptions. Um, so let's say they make it through all that, right? So uh, exhausted their case, filed the complaint, paid the filing fees. Let's say they make it all the way through somehow through discovery and motions practice and all these other kind of steps that are challenging even for tra- chain attorneys. What happens on the back end? Let's say a prisoner wins a case. What relief can they possibly get? A court's ability to issue injunctive relief is incredibly limited along a number of dimensions. It's, it's very short-lived, they have to come up with this sort of least intrusive means of achieving an outcome and so on. Um, but even on the damages side of the ledger, right, the sort of make whole by giving money side of the ledger, there are all sorts of limitations. So one that comes from the Prison Litigation Reform Act, it's a provision called the Physical Injury Requirement. And it basically says, it. You cannot recover damages for quote mental or emotional injury absent a showing of physical injury. So, you know, for instance, I have a client who has been in solitary confinement since 1994. He has spent a quarter century and counting without meaningful human contact. He is hallucinating. He's had thoughts of suicide. His mental faculties are deteriorating at a really alarming rate. Um, But should he? Win his case, defendants have taken the position. All of those are mental or emotional injuries. He hasn't proven a physical injury, so no dice. He can't get possibly get any damages for a quarter century and counting in solitary confinement. And even for prisoners who get damages, off the top of that in most states come any court fees, any court fines, any restitution owed to victims, Often states have what are called, quote, pay to stay provisions, where they will take out of the top of this damages award, the cost of incarcerating the person. So the odds that someone even gets monetary compensation, let alone the sort of injunctive relief that we think of as necessary for meaningful change, um, really, really limited. Um, And so to take a step back, prisoners are doing all of this, remember, without access to even a computer or a typewriter often with limited, if any, access to legal materials, right? So even prisons that allow law library access will often impose these incredibly draconian limitations. You can request one case a week and there's a limit to the number of pages you can have in your cell. And so if you can imagine how hard it would be for even a trained attorney to put together a pleading under those conditions, imagine how much harder for prisoners. who by and large don't have formal legal education. Um, Prisoners are doing this while faced with a sort of standard range of deprivations. There are um, routinely, prisoners routinely lose a lot of their personal property. They're routinely moved between cells and have materials confiscated. Um, uh, Prisoners are proceeding against defendants who are also their captors, who kind of control every aspect of their lives. Um, and the population of folks who are incarcerated tends to be tends to have less education and more mental health issues than the general population. Um, so sort of when we think about the state of prison law, I often decry sort of how few wins there are. Um, and for me, at least, it's important to at least sometimes take a step back and consider how miraculous it is that any prisoner proceeding pro se can even makes it into court let alone wins a case occasionally, right? The amount of bravery and fortitude it often takes to even consider filing a lawsuit, the level of smarts it takes to draft a complaint with no legal training and virtually no access to helpful materials, and the kind of degree of persistence it takes to put something together in the face of all these obstacles, given the limitations of the person setting. Um, All of that really never ceases to amaze me.
3: We had Aaron Littman on and he talked about pursuing administrative law as a complement slash alternative to litigation um, because of the limitations that he saw, and I think you've alluded to, um, in Eighth Amendment doctrine and just the procedures that are required to, to find success through litigation. Could you speak to, I guess, your idea on whether you think there's limits to litigation as a pathway to prison condition reform, and maybe just your thoughts on Aaron Litman's piece?
5: Sure. Um, So I was really excited to read Aaron's piece because I do think there are real limits to litigation as a pathway to reform. So even assuming, like even if you take away all of the obstacles we've already talked about, doctrinal and procedural, that prevent prisoners from getting into court, let alone succeeding, even if you took away all the hostile judges in the world, right, you still have at least a couple of problems, some of which Aaron alluded to. So to just take three kind of off the top of my head. The first is what Aaron's article calls this quote, disaggregation problem, right? You proceed at best sort of facility by facility, often not even prisoner by prisoner. Um, And in theory, right, uh, it just takes one case and then the prison is operating sort of in the shadow of that litigation. Um, But we know that not all cases are created equal. Even successful cases don't often wind up in this sort of published circuit court precedent that kind of wind up influencing a prison administrator. Even those that do, it often takes litigation to enforce compliance, even with kind of well-entrenched doctrinal limits. Um, the second is that prison conditions litigation, particularly under the constitution, is fundamentally reactive rather than preventative, right? the way our legal system is structured, something bad has to happen to you for you to get standing to get into court. Obviously, there's a bunch of nuances there, but the basic way that the American legal system works is you wait for the bad thing to happen and then you go sue about it. Um, And so that's another real limit to to litigation, right? The damage is often already done or in progress by the time a court will hear you out. Um, And then the third is sort of, Aaron sort of points out that there's a level of technocratic expertise and an ability to consider a wider range of data uh, in the regulatory state than can possibly be true in, uh, in, in, in the context of constitutional litigation, right? The Eighth Amendment is about cruel and unusual punishment, it considers the interests of the particular prisoner, it doesn't consider public health or rehabilitation or the interests of people outside the prison or, you know, any number of other facets of our problem that regulators can often consider. Um, and so when I think about Aaron's proposal, I think that we want to be fighting on as many battlefields as possible, right? And so the idea that a, a site for advocacy is not just a courtroom, but also the office of a public health official or the notice and comment process in uh the, For for the FDA or whatever the case might be, is I think a really exciting one. And, you know, I I will voice some initial skepticism just because, you know, I think we can conceptualize regulators as sort of experts or technocrats who are sort of channeling pure public health considerations, or we can conceptualize regulators as sort of um, political actors. Democratically accountable political actors who are furthering the agenda of a particular administration. And we know for a whole host of reasons: felon disenfranchisement, prison gerrymandering, the diluted power of poor communities of color, narratives around who prisoners are and what kinds of people care about them. For a whole host of reasons, prisoners and their allies are rarely the source of power centers that can influence the trajectory of these democratically accountable. Actors, And so, you know, the the reason that prisoners so often turn to litigation is because there isn't a politically accountable entity that tends to care about their needs. I don't mean to suggest never, right? So Aaron's article articulates a number of really fascinating examples of regulators prioritizing the needs of incarcerated people. So he talks about... um, you know, programs to attract doctors that define underserved more generously in prisons than in the free world. He talks about the planning of pipeline routes, prioritizing uh, avoiding prisons because prisoners are so much harder to evacuate. He talks about prioritizing vaccinations for folks in prisons. Obviously, there are instances where regulators think about the needs of prisoners. But Uh, To the extent we we conceive of the administrative state as part of a political branch, it's not necessarily clear to me that there's always going to be the political will to prioritize the needs of incarcerated people.
3: Isha, it seems to me that litigation serves a particularly valuable purpose of showing regard for human dignity, in that, allowing prisoners to go to court and pursue justice in their own eyes, center their voices and stories um, in a society that, that marginalizes them and a society where they don't have very much political power. That that's really important. Um, could you comment on that a little bit?
5: Sure. And you know, just to to set the stage a little bit, right? We're talking about folks who shouldn't be behind bars in the first place, who are sort of subjects of a really racialized criminal apparatus, who should be able to take for granted that they're treated with a modicum of human decency. Um, So when I talk about the pathways to human dignity afforded by litigation, I mean sort of in the context of that devastating reality, litigation can still serve a function, even if not the sort of make-whole function we'd prefer. Um, And so a couple of ways in which litigation can do that. The first is, of course, litigation centers the person, the individual plaintiff and what they want in a way that the regulatory state isn't designed to do, right? The regulatory state of necessity operates in gross. It talks about masses of people and data on each side. Um, So for instance, I have a client who uh, is housed in a cell that's covered in black mold, and he also had a run-in with a guard who confiscated his Kendrick Lamar CD and told him if he wanted to listen to music, he could listen to the country music on the radio station. Um, And, you know, I I think possibly a regulator or someone looking at his situation would say, you know, the the number one priority here is get you out of the cell with black mold. But the thing he wanted to litigate over was his access to the music he wanted to listen to. That was part of his humanity. That was incredibly important to him. That was a piece of the puzzle that felt... that felt the most unjust. Um, And so being able to support him in that campaign is, I think, something that's unique to a kind of litigation role rather than a role that thinks about balancing large groups of people on each side. You know, I think that there's that sort of individual advocacy allows particular people's stories to be told. It allows someone to be preserved in the pages of the federal reporter, right? I've had clients say to me, wow, like I'm just really excited to have, you know, a Johnson versus case that other prisoners might cite. Um, and when litigation is successful and results in damages awards, those damages awards, you know, aren't sort of more resources for a prison to build a better cell. they're money that goes directly into the pocket of the incarcerated person, asterisk minus the fines and fees that we talked about earlier. Um, and so I, I do think that there are ways in which even with the most effective administrative state in the world, um, and again, I think there's a number of kind of political hurdles to getting there, litigation can still serve these kinds of, as Broderick put it, human dignity functions in a way that I think is meaningful.
3: sure it's so wonderful having you here. You did an amazing job really explaining and illustrating the difficulties of prison litigation, of the hopes for the future, and in how administrative law and litigation can work together as, as Aaron said, throwing everything but the kitchen sink at this problem.
5: Thank you, and thank you so much for having me and for publishing this really fascinating scholarship about the possibilities for person reform going forward.
0: The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thank you to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful people at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.